Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. You're listening to the New Books Network, and this is the Drugs Addiction Recovery Podcast. My name is Lucas Rickert, and uh, today we're lucky to be joined by Casey Schwartz. Uh, Let me give you an introduction of her. Casey lives in New York City, where she grew up. She's a graduate of Brown University, and she holds a master's degree in developmental neuroscience and psychoanalysis from University College London. Very cool. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the New York Times Magazine, in Newsweek, uh, and uh, various other publications. So while she was uh, in graduate school, she found uh, the subject of her first book, In the Minefields, published by Pantheon in 2015. It's a work of nonfiction about the culture clash between the old and the new ways of thinking about the mind and the brain. Her new book is called Attention, a Love Story, published this year, uh, once more by Pantheon Books, and uh, the paperback edition is forthcoming with uh, Penguin, and it's absolutely wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much, Lucas. I'm thrilled to talk to you. So uh, I came across your wonderful work and this brand new book of yours, um, uh, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, I don't know, time sort of collapsed a little bit um, when you were giving a presentation on the history of psychiatry. And it was, I think, really important for me to really sit down and have a conversation with you. Um, it, look, it's a really personal story that you tell in the book. And so I, I wanted to start off by just asking about how how on earth did you decide to um, focus on this book, Attention, A Love Story, and sort of what compelled you to write this particular book? Right. Well, in about 2015, I was just winding down with the first book. And um, I was I was actually at a literary conference, and I, I was watching this sort of dance performance. And I suddenly had this thought, wow, we give away our attention so casually. And I was so sad as I thought about that, like why we had um, deferred to what Silicon Valley wants for us, what they want us to purchase, how they want our days to be rhythmed, um, that we've all just, without, without really even raising an eyebrow, we've sort of conceded. And, you know, Listen, it feels like a lost cause. Our, obviously, our devices are here to stay, and our world has never been more virtual than it is right now. Here we are in quarantine, our screen time sort of through the roof. But still, I wanted to dig into the subject of attention and try to push back a little bit, if I possibly could, at the sort of um, unconscious way that we had simply given it away. And um, then, you know, um, 
I realized, oh, wait, this is actually, this is a personal story. This doesn't start with my iPhone or my Blackberry, right? This starts with what you alluded to, um, a deeply personal story of having spent a decade plus kind of addicted to an attention drug called Adderall, which I'm sure most people know about now. Um, And that was an addiction that really started when I was 18 years old, freshman in college, barely heard of Adderall because it was the year 2000. So it had only been on the market for four years um, in its present form. And a friend handed it to me when I told her, what am I going to do? I have an essay due the next day on a book I haven't read yet. And she said, take this. I can't stand it. It makes me want to do cartwheels all night down the hall. Okay, so for her, that was a bad thing. But for me, that was like the most enticing description that anyone could have invented about any drug in the world. Because I love being up, up, up and having energy and drinking coffee. And like, that's my preferred state. Mm -hmm. Took this drug and it was, it felt like a key in the lock for me psychologically because I hadn't even consciously realized, oh, I I obviously feel inadequate when it comes to attention. But I think a lot of us do. I think a lot of us feel like if only I could be, if only I could master my attention or be sort of bionic or superhuman, then, then I could be, you know, the best self then I could be the most successful self. And, you know, we have this idealized vision of what attention could be. And we think, oh, I'll never live up to that, you know. Um, But Adderall kind of gave me the illusion that I could live up to it. It was attention in a bottle. And I wound up spending a decade plus on this thing. Um, And I had just gotten off of it a year or two before I decided to write this book about attention. Um, so that's a long way of answering your question, Lucas, as to where the origins of this book lie. Yeah, it's such a fascinating book, honestly. There's so many various threads that are woven together to create such an intriguing tapestry. Um, so drugs, obviously, Adderall. I've written my fair share about drugs. Um, I edited a journal about drugs. And so that's one of the things that popped for me. But the tech side, um, the tech side is something that was inescapable. Um, but also, you know, what came through for me was your love of writing and writers. Um, oh, yeah. And so I, I guess I'm just trying to struggle to formulate my question, which is, you know, in putting these themes together and sort of weaving them together. Um, just tell us a little bit about what that's like, what the, what your writing process was like. Sure. And I, I like that you use that word inescapable in terms of the tech of it all, because yes, I would say for me, that particular chapter felt a little more like dutiful. Like I was obliged. Oh, sorry. To get into, to get into, you know, figures like Tristan Harris, who's a brilliant sort of whistleblower, ex-Google guy. Um, and I loved writing about him and meeting him and talking to him. But, you know, tech is not something that I'm sort of ignited by. Um, I don't find it that compelling to sort of, um, sort of, get into the Silicon Valley mentality. 
Um, you know, there are a million ways you can approach a subject like attention, right? And this is part of the conundrum of this book is like, how do you narrow it down? Because attention itself roams the world. It roams into every domain. So how are you going to narrow down what to include in a book about attention, right? But I knew that that I really wanted not only to, to have it be sort of half memoir, um, but also to to sort of gravitate to the humanities, which I didn't really get to do in my last book and which I missed terribly. That's what I care about, books. Um, that's what I feel is so sort of threatened by our new sort of shortened attention span. And that's where I felt like I would find some of my deepest answers. And then, then I had a new problem, which is like, okay, how do you choose which writers? Because every writer cares about attention. But ultimately, I kind of focused it down on William James, who's an obvious choice. He's this great American psychologist and philosopher who totally elevated the subject of attention in the last years of the 19th century to, first of all, he wrote about it beautifully, novelistically. Um, you know, there are these famous quotes from William James, like, my experience is what I agree to attend to. And what he meant was, you know, that that you shape your whole entire life by where you put your attention, right? And but attention had never been considered like this a worthy subject of scientific inquiry mm-hmm. um, until those final years of the 19th century when James and others began to look at it sort of more closely and in some cases in a laboratory setting, just trying to answer these basic questions like okay, can we pay attention to more than one thing at a time or not? And that's when people kind of were getting fascinated by attention um, for the really first time. And, um, you know, so William James is like an obvious choice for a book about attention um, because he's the philosopher king of the subject. But then I also wanted to include David Foster Wallace, Algis Huxley and Simone Weil. And all three were preoccupied by the power of attention. And it was not about, you know, technology. It was not about screen time. It was beyond that. I mean, it it was that too, but it went so beyond in terms of how do we treat each other? How do we have compassion for each other? How do we imagine um, another person's circumstance? That's what attention meant to people like David Foster Wallace and Simone Weil. It was ethical and it was existential. Some of the tidbits in in your book where you talk about how people can ignore each other because they're they've got their screens in front of them is something that I th- resonates probably with everyone in the United States and beyond the shores um, because we're struggling with the ethics now of how do we divide our time, which is so fragmented. Our attention is so fragmented now. I mean, personally, my time is is split between various screens um more so now than ever before uh as we talk amid uh COVID-19 and a, and a lockdown so and Lucas that's the contradiction and the paradox right because like thank god for our screens right now right can you imagine if we didn't have them we'd be so isolated and and like the economy would be you know even more jeopardized but 
you know, I actually would argue that it's like more important now than ever to be conscious of where you're putting your attention because it's so easy to slip into just an absolute rabbit hole of information overload. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of this contradictory thing where we're both more dependent than ever, but it's also more urgent than ever that we know where we're putting our attention. As I incessantly scroll Twitter occasionally, um, I, I find a lot of my colleagues are um, complaining, probably rightfully so, about nine hours straight on Zoom, uh, and their eyes are are burning, uh, taking eye drops and so on. But I'm with you. I'm with you 100% that we need to be uh, deeply critical and cognizant of, of what's happening right now. When this is over, I never want to speak of Zoom again. <laughs> Don't ever tell me about Zoom. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Duly noted. I, um, yeah, I mean, I guess besides, you know, bundling these various threads together, which you do uh, very artfully in the book, um, your love of writers and, um, and drugs and, and tech, a few other ideas jumped out at me that I wanted to pick your brain about. Um, and, you know, I already mentioned, you know, I, I have a, a fascination in the history of drugs uh, and intoxication. Um, this is sort of what I've hung my hat on uh, over the past few years. And what I really, really liked about the book um, was how you played around with the notion that um, legitimate medicines um, drugs that are approved um, and prescribed um, by a physician and approved by federal regulators um, are not necessarily categorized the same way uh, or thought of the same way as quote unquote street drugs. Um, so that there are these sort of implicit meanings um, with drugs. So I just wanted to throw that out and whether or not you can share some thoughts about this. Um, I mean, exactly. Like, you know, first we have the, the situation with Adderall, which is now an epidemic in the United States. Millions of people are prescribed Adderall, but I'm sure millions more take it and abuse it without a prescription. And, you know, we think of Adderall, I think, slightly benevolently because, A, it's not that fatal. So, but also, B, um, it's associated with success and achievement and with people who want to succeed and achieve. But I think what's, you know, the bottom line is it's basically methamphetamine. And I mean, it's almost identical to methamphetamine. Um, and I think that's something to keep in mind. Um, and I think, you know, like when I was drawn to it, it wasn't like I was like sort of looking for a way to buck the system and drop out and resist and sort of self-destruct. Not at all. I was from a high achieving background and thought like, okay, how do I, how do I sort of, I want, I want to be a part of that extraordinary success. And here's the drug for me. Right. But later on in the book, and this is where I want to turn the tables on you, Lucas, because I know your expertise is really here, but later on in the book, I'm, sort of gravitated to doing some reporting on the fascinating world of psychedelic science. Um, and the reason I wanted to include it in the book is that for me, and I wonder if you found this too, like the subtext of so much of that movement is 
we're not living our life quite right right now, right? And let's get enlightened and let's look inward with the help of these compounds or these medicines um, to, to sort of realign slightly. And that was, you know, I'm not a big psychonaut. It's not like I'm over here dropping acid regularly at all. I mean, but like I was, it's more that 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 subtext intrigued me intellectually. And um, of course, a lot of people use microdosing of psychedelics to concentrate. So I knew there was there was sort of a connection. Is that tell me about your experience reporting on the exact same thing? Right. Yeah. Well, with um, Adderall, I guess it's got uh, positive connotations because it's been approved. Um, it's gone through uh, randomized controlled trials. And, you know, maybe the idea is that it leads to productivity, uh, that it's sort of like me drinking a coffee like I am right now, that it's, it's part of helping the economic system. Um, move forward. Whereas LSD doesn't, or other entheogens don't really have those same sort of um, meanings. Um, they're far more introspective about the self and they're, they're not going to make you work um, or do cartwheels down the hall, as he said, right? I mean, maybe they'll make you bounce off the walls or see spots on the walls, but they're not going to necessarily make you do um cartwheels all the time um so it's like what kind of behaviors do these drugs uh produce and that might be a way of thinking about it uh lsd and other uh entheogens force you know i think um recalibrations of um ideas and behaviors uh and Obviously, they've been used in mental health uh, as adjuncts in psychotherapy. Um, but, you know, just like Adderall has been used um, uh, within, uh, within therapy. So there are lots of points of departure uh, and convergence with the two. Um, and that's why the, the discussion that you had in your book um, uh, and contrast the use or misuse um, was so that, I think that's why the way you interpreted uh, these different substances, well, I think uh, readers should really get into this. Oh, well, good. I'm glad you felt so. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 my, my, my sense is um, with psychedelics, um, reading about how you sort of um, wended your way into um, Silicon Valley and talked to some of the, sort of the leading uh, researchers that, that we should know about what this experience was like. So please, by all means, um, what's it like to talk about psychedelics with, with people in Silicon Valley or at the conferences you went to? Well, um, I, I don't know if I... I'm trying to remember if I ever had a conversation with a Silicon Valley person about psychedelics, but um, I wound up at this ayahuasca retreat. Um, and um, the way that I did was I, I had gone to do some reporting for the New York Times on this big um, psychedelic conference in 2017 mm. with this sort of ulterior motive 
because I was in the midst of writing this book that, okay, let me see if there's an inherent and organic connection to the subject of attention in this world of psychedelic science. And I got to the conference and on one of the last days, this really unusual doctor named Dr. Gabor Mate gets up on a stage to talk about um, his work with, he's a trauma expert. And um, I had known his name for years and sort of thought like, I'm bound to run into this man. I should have had that sense, that instinct. And here he was, and I just found him utterly original at age 73, talking about using, among other things, talking about using ayahuasca to help people heal from trauma. And then I realized, oh, um, Mate has actually written an entire book about what else? Attention. This is how I started reporting with him because, you know, we had long conversations about the connection between the rise of psychedelics right now and the desire to get some kind of here and now presence back in our lives, to get our attention back to the present moment. And for him, that connection was very obvious. Um, and I wound up kind of a few months later accompanying him to the yearly sort of, he was, he was working for a week sort of as a guest speaker at an ayahuasca retreat. And um, I'd never taken ayahuasca and I was actually terrified of it. Um, and I had meant, I wanted to take it sort of, but I wasn't able to get off my antidepressants in time. And, you know, you, you're not allowed to mix those two things because it can be fatal. And when I got to this nameless ayahuasca retreat, I, I didn't realize how jealous I would actually be of the people around me who did have this full blown experience. I was sitting in ceremony with them every night observing. And I was on this like mild homeopathic dose that was considered safe. Mm. But by day two or three, I was so pissed off that I couldn't find out for myself, like what the mechanism of all this incredible change was. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would just sit there on my own little mattress as everyone around me was kind of like, you know, they, they call it the noble silence when you're, uh, when you're on your ayahuasca trip and like, you, you're not supposed to emote because it disturbs everyone else's experience, except for the sound of throwing up. Nice. Right. And it was like, but it was so intense, you know, and you could see this incredible, it was in this, it was close to the equator. And you can see these sort of brilliant stars in this clear sky at night. And you're like lying out on mattresses. And it was just, it was such an incredible experience. Um, and I saw over the course of the week, these remarkable arcs of change around me and the people around me as these sort of defenses melted. And I don't know, I, I wish, I mean, I have a baby now. I don't know when I'm going to, have the chance to go spend a week near the equator doing ayahuasca, but um, a person can dream, Lucas. Yeah. It makes me think about the return of psychedelics in this moment. Um, because, I mean, as you put in the book, um, we're in the midst of what some people are calling a psychedelic renaissance. And uh, so, you know, major universities um, in the States and elsewhere in the UK establishing research centers. Um, the federal government is now approving uh, more clinical trials 
We're very, very close to uh, seeing uh, some drugs um, actually get FDA approval. Um, so MDMA and others. So it just, you know, your book seemed to uh, to really be talking about what I think is on the minds of many, many people right now. Um, like not only how we regard psychoactive substances like Adderall uh, and psychedelics, um, but how we sort of regard science in society as well. Uh, which so farther with that. What do you mean? Well, so science being sort of this, we, in a lot of ways, it's, it's a very fluid and intermediated, often very political process. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the, one of the implicit meanings or subtexts in your book is that, you know, drugs like Adderall and, um, uh, and psychedelics and sort of the evidence surrounding our, our phones and, and all the tech is, um, is, is often sort of contingent on, on, uh, a given moment in time that, you know, there are people in Silicon Valley or in Washington, DC that are very happy for us to be on, on certain drugs and very happy for us to, be in front of our, our screens all the time. But there might be interests um, involved. I'm not a conspiratorial dude. I'm really not. <laughs> well, I mean, there's no question that, um, I mean, the more eyeballs we, we put, you know, onto Twitter, the more money Twitter makes. I mean, we know that our attention has been monetized. So clearly that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was reading a, a book the other day, um, not besides your book, um, and uh, it's called The Age of Addiction. And um, it's by David Courtright, and he talks about how our, our brains have been um, weaponized and the, and the reward pathway systems in our brains have been weaponized. Uh, and essentially, big business is now capitalizing on... Uh, on this, on the pleasure centers in our brain, which you talk about, which you talk about in your book. So that hit of dopamine that we get every time that we go to our phones and, and scroll through it. Totally. Yeah, right. I mean, it's the same sort of thing that we get with um, with Adderall or um, you know a McDonald's cheeseburger. Uh, Actually, Lucas, it's sort of poignant because it's like, okay, so what are we seeking when we pick up our phone? Um, and by the way, we pick up our phone hundreds of times a day, study show. Um, and we touch our phones thousands, apparently. Um, it's like, is that true? Right. That's, that's right. Yeah. I mean, there's a study that says we touch our phone over 2,000 times a day. Um, <laughs> I believe it. But it's like, it's sort of, you know, one of the questions I, I think, like, for me, the interesting question was, um, what are we, like, trying to flee in our own lives, you know, that makes our phone so irresistible? Like, what anxiety or fear are we trying to get away from 
when we're in an Instagram trance for two and a half hours. You know, and, you know, I think David Foster Wallace would have said something like a fear of death. The fact that we're mortal. Um, something big, profound. And it's this, it's coming out in this poignant way where we're, we're just, we can't stand to sit with our own quiet thoughts. We'll do anything to avoid that. Oh, that's kind of freaky. Uh, I, let me ask about intelligence then. So uh, can you tell uh, our listeners about how our screens and how the fragmentation of our attention impacts intelligence? Uh, I didn't, I'm not an expert on the exact studies, but from what I've read, um, you know, there's this interesting book by Jean Twinge called I, Jen. She thinks that the generation that's, I guess, about 25 now should be called like the I generation. And in her book, one of the things that really surprised me um, was that um, I didn't know that, that did you, that the SAT scores have already significantly declined. Um, but you're a professor. So, I mean, like, what are you seeing when you assign your students, like, read it? Are they able? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean... It's a good question. Super loaded question too. It's, I mean, super variable. Um, because I've seen over, I guess, the 10 years I've been teaching students, um, in the classroom and in the seminar room, particularly that attention has become slightly more spread out and that it's, it's cute. I mean, obviously anecdotal. Um, and I haven't published anything on this myself, but that students are, um, you know, asking for shorter, more readings rather than fewer, longer readings. And this has been consistent over the past five years. So instead of assigning one book in a class, um, or instead of positively reacting to the assigning of one book in a class, students would rather have um, three or four short articles. And they said that that helps their um, helps them learn. Um, so that's what I've encountered. I don't know if that jives with some of the studies um, you've come up with or some of the other readings you've encountered. Yeah, I think it does. But um, what has been, I think it's it's striking that I mean, every single teacher and professor I've spoken to has said the exact same thing. And you remember when we met on that other call, that other Zoom conference, there was that teacher, Jerry, who spoke about her experience, that her students can no longer get through a single book. That's, that's, very, that's very vivid for me. I don't know how universal that is. Yeah. Um, and it also makes me wonder how I am going to raise my own children. Uh, not to make this too personal or anything, but, um, you know, what the lockdown is suggesting about pedagogy, uh, it, and for how the teachers are dealing with my children, but then how, so how also I, um, get them involved in more books. Um, so I don't know if you're struggling with this as well. 
Well, no, because my kid is only five months old. <laughs> so you don't have a screen in front. So thank God I don't have to do homeschooling yet. But what's funny is that, you know, all throughout my pregnancy, um, as I was finishing this book about attention, I was so adamant to my husband that, okay, the one thing I really care about is that this baby is not going to have any screen time, not a moment of screen time till he's three years old. And now we've been in quarantine for two months. This kid has been on FaceTime every day of his life, practically. For sure. You know, I mean, visiting with aunties and grandmothers and it's just unavoidable right now. Um, so I feel, you know, my God, my my ideals about keeping him away from the computer screen were just they just went up in smoke. <laughs> <laughs> can I can I ask you something about the book again? It's um, so. <clears throat> A lot of, the, excuse me, my goodness, that made me laugh and some got stuck in my throat. Um, I uh, Look, a lot of the people I talk to on this podcast are um, trained historians or anthropologists or, or, or whatever. And um, I, I'm going to criticize all of them. And I'm going to say that their books are not nearly as elegantly written as yours is. Thank you so um, much. Um, and I say that. Because it blends all sorts of sources and personal anecdotes into a, a narrative that, you know, is, is deeply compelling. But, um, you know, what you're doing is you're talking about your travels and some of the fun that you're going through at the same time. And so just for people who actually haven't written books out there who are listening to this, you know, how do you piece your narrative together so like inside baseball kind of question Casey okay let me think if I can be helpful because it's really more instinctual than I think it is totally plotted out okay um but I personally love writing personally I love writing memoir I love writing about my life like I don't find it um sort of painful or difficult. I find it easier than other forms of writing. And um, the nonfiction that I love to read is mostly hybrid, personal, and reported. So some of the writers that I love are like Leslie Jameson, Olivia Lang. And I feel like it's very sort of, it's almost become, and I don't know exactly why, but it's very fashionable now to blend these personal narratives with more like with more reported um pieces um and I, I i'm sorry i'm not doing a very good job of answering this but it's not exactly something that i can even articulate mm-hmm. um and it's it oh by the way it helps to have a brilliant editor <laughs> like yeah. really draw a huge x through the paragraphs where i go off the deep end you know that's a crucial ingredient here um, so I would, I would just sort of say that, you know, he's, he's a big part of this. Um, but, um, you know, that, that's kind of a long-winded answer. No. And I, I, you know what, I'm going to confess. I don't think I have a good answer about how I structure or even conceptualize the writing of my books. Um, 
sometimes I go personally with uh, an outline. Other times it's much more sort of stochastic, I guess. Um, um, but And the best is when, and I, I do find this happens a lot, is like when you're, you know, when you're in the midst of, you're out reporting something and then something it, it it happens so often that like your next story or your next chapter, your next inspiration comes when you're in the in the thick of another, right? Like that you're out in the world engaging with this telling of the story, and you sort of follow your nose from to the next scent. And um, I can't tell you even just like in doing like newspaper or short shorter form journalism how often it's it is that i'm out doing one story when i get the idea for the next one mm. so i don't know what I, that is exactly yeah i um so you finished this book up and are you you know it's 2020 it's still probably fresh in your mind that uh it's only recently come out and it's probably also bittersweet that it's done. Uh, yeah, and it, it is because I loved writing this book because this topic was so rich and I got to read incredible literature, meet fascinating people and like just basically talk about and think about all day, every day, the larger question of the book, which is sort of like what matters and how should we be living our life? And I loved that, that it had this kind of, like, I don't know that there was this elevated sense with this book of just like, I'm going to, I'm going to get to dwell in a realm of wonderful ideas um, that I felt so lucky to get to engage with. But I, and I already regret so many things I didn't include in so many directions I didn't go in. And I, I was like, I, I'm just thinking, oh, I wish I had another year. I could have, I could have become a, you know, a monk. I could have written about like becoming a monk for this book. I don't know, but <laughs> I do miss it actually. And it's, it's been a very strange time to publish a book. I mean, this book came out the, literally the day before like the death toll hit its peak in New York city. Um, it's, you know, it's been strange to, to put it mildly. Um, but, um, but there you have it. I mean, those are things you can't really control. Are you um, planning out your next project right now? Um, I'm. You said you had a five month old, so. I mean, it's and with no help, so it's you know, no, not really. Except I think I want to do something about the American West, but I'm not totally sure what. Uh, Let's. I hope you'll have me back, and I can tell you more about it in a couple of years. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, for sure. 100%. Well, you know what? Uh, I'm going to just say to all listeners that they should immediately get a copy of uh, Attention, A Love Story by Casey Schwartz. And even though we've been talking about screens, uh, they should get it on uh, their Kindle uh, and they should get uh, a hard copy. Um, <laughs> So, uh, it's like I already said, it, it um, blends um, all sorts of fascinating topics of drugs, um, uh, tech, and it also narrates a wonderful personal story. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. 
Uh, Lucas, yes, I've loved it. Thank you.